Good morning. Let's pray really quickly before we get started. Holy, holy, holy God. I just pray, Father, that as a woman with unclean lips, that you would fill me with your spirit. Lord, you knew who would be here today, who is listening online, who is going to listen in the future to the words that uh, I believe you have given to me. So speak through me, Father. Crucify me. Stand in my flesh, Lord, and thank you that your word never returns void. Move powerfully today in all of us so that we could come to know you more and that your name would be praised. In your name we pray. Amen. In our passage today in Luke, we see healing and wellness. Healed in the Greek means healed, cured. While the word well is sozo, to save, deliver, protect, heal, be made whole. There is some crossover, but they are indeed two different words. Used to convey what we might on first reading think are the same thing. So our question of the day is this, given the choice, do we want to be healed or made well? Because to me, the most unremarkable thing about our passage is that Jesus heals a woman and brings a little girl back from death. Of course, he can do that. We have seen throughout this whole series that the miraculous was pretty common for Jesus. They were an act of love by a father to his children. And they allow us to get a preview of what we read in Revelation when he finally returns and makes all things new and perfect. Then we will be all healed. In the meantime, while we may not all receive healing, we can all receive wellness. So, yeah, kind of unremarkable that the creator of the universe, the feeder of death, can heal. What is remarkable, is how often he turns a healing into something so much more wonderful. And when he doesn't heal when we expect him to, how being in a relationship with him can make the waiting much more bearable. Not always pleasant, necessarily, but fruitful. When Xander is working on a sermon, being an out loud processor of all things, he often will talk through what he's going to say. And at the end of it, I say, so what? Not in like a mean way. I, I say it in a helpful way, I hope. What I'm really asking is, what does this teaching that we're learning today about Jesus apply? How does it apply to our lives right now? It's a good question, right? So as I was preparing this talk, I asked myself that question. The answer, I discovered, is brilliant and multifaceted and layered and exciting and wonderful, and it would take me three hours to do it justice. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take three hours, mostly because when I told Xander I would take three hours, he said 20 minutes. So you can thank him for that. What I am hoping to do in this short time is draw out a few salient points and then attempt to help us all find the answer to our question of the day and our so what. Let's dig in. Okay, Jesus has just come back from healing a man riddled with demons. 
Not only does he free him from the hold that they have on him, healing, he clothes him and gives him an identity and a purpose, wellness. Now he's back in Galilee, and the crowds are waiting for him. Among them is our high roller, Jairus, leader of the synagogue, and he's got a desperate need. His only daughter is dying. We don't know much about Jairus, but what we do know is that as the leader of the Jews, he was kind of a big deal. He was married, and he loved his little girl. Being kind of a big deal, he's likely got access to some pretty good resources. And at this point, he has more than likely exhausted all of them. In his desperation and because he loves his daughter, he is compelled to do something risky and quite possibly detrimental to his career by seeking help from this very controversial rabbi that his fellow religious Jew Jewish leaders would consider to be a blasphemer. But when we are in a desperate situation and our own resources are coming up short, we will sometimes finally remember faith and turn to Jesus. So he takes a risk. He throws off his pride and possibly preconceived notions about the Christ, and he falls at the feet of his last hope. Jesus honors this humility, and they are now switching direction, headed to Jairus' house. Yes! In our house, it's common for us to sit down in the evening and talk about our highs and lows of the day. I'm ashamed to call, say we call it our peaks and our pits. If you know, you know. Don't judge us. Anyway, when the kids, more when they were little, inevitably mid-conversation, one of them, usually Hannah, would remember something suddenly that had to be done or retrieved from her room, and she would run out of the room and then scream back at the rest of us, pause the story! Children of a digital age, everything can be paused, right? Well, this right here where we're at in this passage is a pause the story moment. Here we are, we're rooting for this 12-year-old girl and her father. She's dying. Time is of the essence. And Jesus is on his way. Will he get there in time? Won't he? How will he fix it? Pause. Verse 43 says, there was a woman. If there was a play, the script would have a stage direction that said something like, enter, stage left, the outcast. But this isn't a make-believe story. This is real flesh and blood with a real need in real distress. She had been bleeding for 12 years. And as we read in Leviticus, this disorder made her unclean, unable to worship or even enter the synagogue. No one could touch her or be near her. So she was probably in physical, mental, emotional pain. And unlike our high roller who had a family, she seemingly had no one. We thought isolation and social distancing for a few months was going to kill us. She was isolated from normal society for 12 years, and she spent everything she had on doctors who couldn't help her. So she was without money and without hope. And like Jairus, she had exhausted all of her options. She was desperate. She's looking for someone who could, in the face of all the expectations of the world and all of the expectations of the law, make the impossible 
possible. So she takes a risk. She edges up behind Jesus and just touches the fringe of his garment, and she's instantly healed. Jesus, knowing exactly who touched him, asks a very important and very particular question. He says, who touched me? It's like when I ask my kids, um, do, you, do you guys want to go take a shower? I'm not really asking. When no one fessed up, Simon Peter decides to maybe help Jesus out, help him see that this is kind of a silly question. So he says, paraphrasing, um, Master, who touched you? That would be everyone. Yeah, everyone is touching you right now. I don't know if you noticed, but this is quite a crowd. Verse 45 says, they are all pressing in on you. That word pressing in the Greek means to strangle completely, to press around and throng so as almost to suffocate. Ever seen a celebrity greeting their fans? The commoners are almost always behind those metal barriers and being held back by a team of very strong, very menacing looking security guys. Imagine the barriers are down and the security guys are a ragtag bunch of fishermen. That's what we have here. Jesus being ever so patient with Simon and knowing that this woman needs more than just to skulk off with her healing does a little pressing himself. No, someone touched me, he said. I know because I perceive that power has gone out from me. This is a whole other sermon. This is like the three-hour extras all in one. And I can't do it right now, but if you have time, go and dig into that concept. And if you really, really want a visual that will leave your jaw on the floor, go and watch season two, episode three, of The Chosen. So good. Actually, just watch The Chosen. It's amazing. Jesus is the healer, but there is evidence to suggest that the healing came with a cost to him, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. What he's looking for in this moment with this woman is specific. Being Jesus, he knew that this outcast needed more than just purely physical healing. She needed restoration, public witness to her restoration, a new identity, and above all, she needed a relationship with her healer. Verse 47 says, when the woman saw that she could not be hidden, she fell at his feet and gave what was essentially a testimony, just what she had come for and how she was instantly healed. Then once she is publicly restored, he looks straight at her and says the most miraculous thing. He calls her daughter. He establishes a connection and a relationship with her, and he changes her identity from outcast to beloved. She is no longer unseen because God himself is looking straight at her. He sought her out and redeemed her. She's not just healed. She is well, whole. Unpause the story. So Jesus is interrupted ministering to a major player in order to restore and heal an outsider because that's what he's like. Amazing. 
Jairus, meanwhile, is presumably watching this whole thing unfold and having to wait while it does. They were on the way to his house when this woman arrives on the scene. What we don't hear from him ever is, um, <coughs> Jesus, Jesus, uh, is there like, is it first come, first serve kind of thing with the healings? Or, you know, my, it's timely, my daughter dying. Did you hear the word dying? Um, no, nothing like that. Not, I'm, I'm kind of a big deal. She's like, not that big a deal. Me first kind of thing. No, not a whisper from him which might give us some insight into his character and his belief in Jesus. And we find out from verse 49 that while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from Jairus' house to let him know that the situation had gone from bad to impossible. And so no need to bother the teacher anymore. But as we've already seen, Jesus makes the impossible possible. So hearing this messenger while he is still speaking, Jesus then turns and speaks to the Father. And he says, verse 50, do not be afraid. Just believe and she will be well. That word believe here is in the aorist tense, which just would help us to understand that what he's saying isn't just believe, but having believed or having begun to believe, keep on believing. That's a word in and of itself to some of us today. Keep on believing. When they arrive at the house, because it says in verse 53, they already knew for a fact that this little girl had died. The professional mourners are already there. They're wailing and crying and making a general doom and gloom scene. When Jesus tells them to stop because she's just asleep, they laugh at him. So thankfully, he puts the mockers out. Then he tenderly takes this young woman by the hand and says a phrase to her that her mother likely might have said to her each morning, which translates to, get up, little one. And her soul returns to her. We know it wasn't necessary for him to touch her. He's, he's healed from a distance before. We've seen that. But unlike everyone else, Jesus is not afraid of death or illness, or contagion. And he is a God who reaches out for us, even when everyone else would shy away. Then he does a thing that I love. He directs them to give her something to eat. Which, you know, because she's been through a lot, and death <laughs> makes you hungry, apparently. He's not only powerful, he is wildly practical. The more I walk with him, the more that I find this to be unequivocally true, and I love it. Then he tells her parents not to tell anyone. Does anyone find that odd? The woman tried not to tell anyone what happened and had to tell everyone. The parents, who couldn't easily hide what had happened, were told to keep it quiet. So what's up with the two different directives? Did I mention he's practical? He knows what we need beyond just healing itself. And he's always and above after a relationship with us. For the woman, it was practical and important that she be publicly restored, not just for the sake of societal reintegration, which was important, but also because it was important for her heart and soul to come out of hiding. 
to be seen as worthy in front of everyone, including herself. Maybe she would forget down the line, and she would need someone in her town who was there to remind her whose she was and how she was healed. Jesus knew what she needed in the moment of healing and what she would need further down the line. And he uses that same awareness for us. For the parents of the little girl, well, they'd had a mountaintop experience. If it weren't for his charge not to tell, they'd probably never stop talking about it. Would you? I wouldn't. I would be insufferable. Oh, your, your kid got an award? That, that's really nice. Did I tell you about the time Jesus raised my daughter from the dead? I did? Let me tell you again. When we have a mountaintop experience with God, we can have a really hard time coming down that mountain and living in the day-to-day. We keep retelling and retelling and retelling our story, which is fine. But we forget that the reason that we were given that, that moment in time in the first place was to move us along in our relationship with Jesus, not to just keep hanging on to it and hanging on to it and refusing to move on until we get another moment like it. And so we, what we learn right here is that we can have a fresh revelation with Jesus much more often than we think. Some of us are living off our moments that we had back in the 90s, and we need to move on and move forward and realize that we can have a fresh revelation today. Take this passage, for example. Some of what we see and perhaps have never seen before is that Jesus is for all of us, from the high roller, who is a family man, to the outcast, who in this case is a single woman. He wants to restore those who are in charge of the temple and those who think they could never even come in. He desires to give us all a new identity as his children, freeing us up from living under the labels and titles, both good and bad, that so often confine us. He also reveals through our pause in the story that our timing and his don't always align. We know that one well. But if we keep on believing and do not fear, we will be well. But none of this matters. None of what we're hearing about in this series will make a blind bit of difference in our lives unless we personally know him. Really believe in him and keep on believing him. I didn't say keep on believing in him. I said keep on believing him. Do we believe Jesus? Do do we even know him well enough to know what to believe and trust his character? Saints, we all have to start being more intentional about fostering our relationship with Jesus. Press into him. To do that, we have to have a living, loving, ongoing relationship with him, not just one we check in with once a week on a Sunday. It's not really a relationship, is it? The concept of relationships in this digital age have become a shadow of what they really are. In spite of all our online friendships we have, how many of those people would you call in the middle of the night in a crisis? Isn't the reality between one and none? We have trouble, at least I do, calling our best friends when we need help. You think we're going to call our Insta followers? If you asked me how my marriage was going, and I said, yeah, yeah, it's really, really great. We see each other on Sundays. 
And as an added bonus, one of his really good friends tells me about him for like an hour once a week. You would wonder what in the world was wrong with me and then offer prayer ministry to my husband. A real relationship alters how I behave and it reveals to me increasingly more and more about the person that I know and love. It requires of me. My mom used to tell me that love was a decision you make every day. And as a young 20-something with stars in my eyes and love on the horizon and big dreams, I hated that. But she's right. Love, real love, is gritty. It's not about feeling, although feelings are involved. It's way more than that. Love requires of us. It has the capacity to change us in really good ways. It's costly and almost always totally worth it. It makes us better, and we love imperfectly. God's word tells us that he is love and that he loves us. How are we doing at loving him back? Because it's our love for him, our relationship with him, that makes us well and equips us for the miraculous. God tells us that he's taken up residence in us through the Holy Spirit, and in light of that, we are way more powerful than we think. And we take him up on so little of that because we think that miracles have to be mountaintops. We want big miracles in our lives, and we should absolutely pray for them. But we don't want to miss out on the everyday miracles that are accessible to us. Sometimes it's a miracle that we are nice to our spouse. Not me. It's easy for me. <laughs> but it can be miraculous when we love. In moments when we are in such a state of despair that to love someone else feels miraculous. It feels impossible, and we do it. When we're being beaten down by the exigencies of life, and we keep on believing and loving and serving, that's miraculous. And I know for a fact that these miracles are going on right now in this church. People who are serving and loving and giving to others when they themselves are in such pain and despair that asking them just to get out of bed in the mor morning is like asking me to run a marathon. I am not sporty. Most of you know that I have fibromyalgia, which is just a label they slap on for any kind of chronic pain. I've had it for a long time, like, I don't know, 15 years, and it's just getting worse. It affects different people in varying ways. For me, it just means that I am in pain almost all the time, almost everywhere. As an added bonus, I get headaches four to seven days out of the week, ranging from mild to severe. It's costly to me, to my family, to my kids, to our ministry, and to my friends who rally around and support me even when they're going through stuff of their own. For years, I've prayed for healing. Xander has prayed for healing. My kids have prayed for healing. A group of my very, very, very best girlfriends have fasted and prayed for me to be healed. And I stand here this morning before you, unhealed. I also stand here, well, 
whole. After years in a relationship with Jesus, I know that I know that I know that if I were given the chance to be healed, but had to give up any part of my relationship with him, I wouldn't think twice about it. Because on those days, when I find myself in a really bad stretch of pain, where it's more relentless than normal and my migraines have, my headaches have gone from seven to migraine, I want to give up on everything. And instead of submitting to my weaknesses and allowing my illness or my feelings about my illness to define me, because of my trust in the healer to continually, practically, spiritually make me well, I can wait patiently most of the time for the heal, even if I have to wait until he returns. And with that solid foundation, I find in him the truly miraculous strength to serve my family and love and be patient with them most of the time, to pause my own story and minister to someone else who needs help, not because I'm amazing by any stretch of the imagination, but because he is. And I know that he equips me with his spirit and that when he says he will set everything right, I can hold to that promise. Keep on believing and press into him. I often press so hard that I am nearly suffocating him. But unlike a human relationship, he can handle it. And he will determine what I need each day. Provide this day my daily bread. And that's enough for me. So whether we are a high roller or an outcast, living out faith in front of everyone or when no one is looking, regardless of the labels that anyone uses for us, including ourselves, he gives us a new identity. He tells us that we are beloved. His word and his love make us whole. That's the so what. Of course, we want to be healed and made well. That's always, always possible. But if you had to choose, would you rather be healed or made well? I 100% know my answer. Amen?